It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Wednesday, January 30th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we're talking to reporter and author Maya Salovitz about the dangerous outcomes when big pharma markets addictive drugs. The pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma began releasing the painkiller OxyContin in 1996. And by 2001, it was already clear that addiction and overdoses related to the drug were on the rise. However, despite the data, the company and its CEO, Richard Sackler, continued to aggressively push the drug. Now there are many lawsuits open against the company for its role in the opioid crisis. Recently, new documents relating to one of these lawsuits were released and shed light on the company's reckless marketing history. The effects of this marketing are real and can be deadly. So today, I'm talking with reporter and author Maya Salovitz to learn more. She's the author of Unbroken Brain, a revolutionary new way of understanding addiction, among other works. She focuses on science, public policy, and addiction treatment. Hi, Maya. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So there have been a bunch of lawsuits against Purdue Pharma, which is the pharmaceutical company that sells the opioid OxyContin. And recently, new documents were released that revealed quite a bit about this company and how they were pushing and marketing that drug in particular. So let's start there. What were some of the tactics, the marketing tactics that this company was using that were revealed in these documents? Basically, what they're doing is they have quotas and they have a very aggressive sales force. And this was released in in these new documents that they actually were going to fire, I think, the Boston team because they weren't selling enough. And it is just insane to me that it's completely legal for people to push opioids on doctors. And, you know, all of the drug companies use these kinds of tactics for different kinds of drugs. So some of them like hire cheerleaders. They take the doctors out to lunch. They do everything they can in order to get them to feel obligated. Oh, like that guy, you know, gave me lunch. So, you know, I feel bad. All right. I can prescribe his drug new deal. You know what I mean? So it's this kind of insidious form of marketing. And and there's research that has shown that actually, if you give people smaller gifts, they feel more obligated to you than if they you give like a giant amount of money. And that sounds strange, but what I think that has to do with is that if you're getting a giant amount of money, you kind of think you're being paid off. <laughs> Whereas if you are just getting these little things like a meal or a pen or something like this, it's unconscious and your feeling of obligation to the person is kind of unconscious. And then you do things like, oh, I'm gonna write 40 Oxycontin instead of 30. Right. I mean, it's kind of crazy, as you said, that 
that kind of marketing is legal for any drugs, but in particular, we're talking about highly addictive opioids. And there was actually a study that you cited in your article that is showing that this type of marketing is related to overdose rates. What what were the findings of that study? Basically, they found that the more of this kind of little type of marketing, like the more visits, the more lunches, the more of these kinds of things that a doctor got, um, the more likely they were to write prescriptions for that drug. And that was associated with higher overdose rates. Now, I want to point out an important caveat here, which is that most of the time, the people who are overdosing are not the people who were actually prescribed the drug. What happens during overprescribing is you get a lot of opioids sitting around in a lot of medicine cabinets. So when people begin to misuse opioids, 80% of the time, it's not their drug. They're not pain patients. They are just ordinary people who are like, hey, let's have a party. Look at all this stuff in the medicine cabinet. Come on, let's try this. And so basically they tend to be teenagers who are, and and young adults who are already recreational drug users rather than pain patients. And that's important to point out because unfortunately, a lot of pain patients who do rely on these medications and who do benefit from them are now being cut off because we're trying to prevent overdose and that actually doesn't help. Right. Yeah. That's a super important point that you're making that kind of speaks to one thing you say in your piece, which is like addiction is really complex and the opioid crisis goes beyond sort of the malicious behavior of this one company, which is important to understand how many factors are at play with the crisis that we're seeing. But at the same time, we are also seeing these sort of malicious marketing behaviors, and that is playing a role. Yeah, I mean, I think it's horrifying that this company was so unethical. And it really complicates life for those of us who want to try to help people with opioid addiction and people in pain. Because some people in pain do need opioids, and people with opioid addiction do not benefit from being cut off and thrown into the street as so-called treatment either. The way we've gone about attacking this crisis has been, well, opioids and overprescribing cause the problem. So if we just reduce prescribing, we'll fix it. But then what happens is the pain patients start committing suicide and the opioid people who are addicted end up going to the street, buying fentanyl and dying of overdose. So this is not working. So how much money did this company make off of this drug in particular? It's at least billions of dollars, but I don't have that figure right in my head right now. It's it's their, It was their main drug and, and they made enormous amounts of profit. I think one of the interesting things about this crisis is that we were under prescribing for pain in the 80s and 90s. There were people who were dying and people who were living in pain that you and I can only imagine couldn't, we couldn't deal with it for one minute and they're li- living with it for 30 years that they were being left to suffer. And then with this increase in prescribing, a lot of those people started to get better and have more functional lives and all this. And then there was just this overprescribing. There was a lot of this, well, okay, like you're having surgery or root canal, so we'll give you 60 Percocet because I don't want to have to write another prescription if you happen to need more. And if you happen to need less, you can just throw it out. Of course, nobody does throw it out because they're like, well, what if I need them? And then they sit in the medicine cabinet. 
Right. Another thing that I want to sort of address is this company's reaction to the allegations and the lawsuits. And I know that they made a media statement last week. And I'd love to hear you talk about that because one thing that jumped out at me about the part of the statement that I read was the company claimed that the allegations ignored people in chronic pain. And that to me felt so manipulative. You know, it's like, you know, when I first started writing about this stuff, people would accuse me of like being, you know, in the tank for pharma or something because I was supporting the right of pain patients to access opioids for pain if they needed it. I still support that right, but I don't support these horrible tactics that these people are doing. And what they did was they created this environment where pain patients got all the opioids they needed and some of them got way too much and some of them were people who didn't benefit and some of them were people with addiction. Now they're swinging us the whole other direction because we see how evil they were in pushing this and the genuine harm that's being done to pain patients. First, they don't get any. Then they get too much. Now they don't get any again. And we're blaming them for this. It's suddenly like, you know, the the other thing that, um, you know, that they did was they're saying, well, it's not our problem. It's the abuser's problem. And what they're trying to do and and what what both sides in this area sort of trying to do, including the, the people who are fighting the lawsuits against them, they're trying to create a simple narrative out of something that is enormously complex. The reality is I can't make you into an addicted person. Like maybe if I abuse you as a child, really young and do really consistently, I can increase your risk quite dramatically. But if you were an adult and I'm a doctor and you come to me and you want opioids and I give them to you, I can't make you then go compulsively use them despite negative consequences. Now I could tie you down and shoot you up for a couple of weeks and create physical dependence so that you're sick when you stop. But I can't create the desire that comes when you have already gone through the hell of withdrawal and then you are completely well and then you go and score again. Because if addiction was simply that physical dependence, nobody would ever quit more than once. So, you know, addiction requires not just a drug, but it requires a vulnerable patient. And that's about, you know, 10 to 20% of the population. And it, it, it reduces with age because by the time you are in your 30s or so, the people who are most likely to become addicted have been trying it since they're 16. But, you know, that's a lot of people. And those people are at risk for all types of addictions. If we prevent them from getting into medical opioids, that's not going to prevent them from getting into street opioids. Now, that doesn't mean we should have like opioids everywhere and Philip Morris fentanyl, God forbid. Uh, but it does mean that it's not just exposure that creates addiction. And the idea that we can blame the pushers is problematic. On the other hand, these guys actually were pushers. It's so hard to explain to people because they're like, well, okay, the drug companies really were evil, but then you're saying that it required a vulnerable person also. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, and also the role of stigma is like a part of this story too, because they were not only pushing the drug, but they were pushing harmful narratives. I mean, I read that the company called people addicted to the drug reckless criminals, and that's like an incredibly stigmatizing narrative around drug abuse that we see already in that kind of criminalization of the drug user. 
Yeah, see, and that's what also really, really, really infuriates me because the reality is that 80% of the people who are misusing these drugs are not getting them legitimately prescribed to them. That is definitely true. That does not mean that those people are reckless, scummy criminals, however. And so you're taking this little bit of the truth and spinning it in a way to like protect yourself and to protect yourself after you've already said you want to create a blizzard of this stuff across the country. That's just not right. Like it is a perfectly acceptable thing to provide opioids appropriately for people who need them. It is not an acceptable thing to push drugs where the drugs are not needed and where they're going to do harm. So the big question, I think, in this story is why is it legal at all for companies to market addictive drugs? Well, and that I still don't get that. I mean, that is part of our unregulated, insane capitalism at the moment. I think that this is part of why our country's in so much trouble. We really need to have restraints on corporations and on corporate behavior. I mean, we think that, you know, we're going to prevent people from using drugs by putting them in jail, but we don't do anything to like these corporations that do this absolutely crazy stuff and that actually kill people. Now, I am not in favor of criminalizing drug use, but I do think that there is absolutely no reason that it should be legal for anybody, whether it's like a guy on the street selling fentanyl and making his workers have a quota, or a guy at Purdue saying, you guys have a quota to sell this to this many doctors. Like that's nuts. You know, if we as a society are to deal with the fact that all humans have always wanted to alter their consciousness, we need to create good regulations to minimize harm. And what we have with drug prohibition is maximized harm. And in addition to that, we have this crazy commercialization where you know, it is absolutely legal for them to do this. And I think one of the reasons that there hasn't been that big a fight against the fact that this is legal is that if what they did was legal, their lawsuits, you know, the people who are suing them are going to lose. And because what is legal is criminal, this is a real problem. I guess my last question is really about the executive of Purdue Pharma, Richard Sackler. I'm I'm just curious, like in all of this press about the kind of amoral actions of this company, like has he expressed any remorse or taken any responsibility? Like what has his reaction been? If he has, I don't know about it. And I think even if he wanted to, his lawyers would probably prevent him at this point. I think... This is sad to say, but I think that the pharmaceutical industry could be an honest and good industry. Like they have drugs that people need that help people, right? And they create cures for things, supposedly. This is just a perversion of that on on every single possible level. So to wrap up this interview, what are the main takeaways of this story? What do you want to see happen kind of legally or otherwise to better support people who are in pain and also people struggling with addiction? Well, first of all, it should be illegal to market addictive substances. Like that's just plain and simple, whether it's tobacco or Oxycontin or marijuana, let's not allow advertising of this. People already want to do these drugs and they know about these drugs. We don't need marketing to push that up in ways that might be harmful, right? I think also we need to criminalize the behavior of these executives where they are profiting by selling stuff that is harming people. 
I, I wrote a previous column actually saying that we need the death penalty for corporations that engage in this kind of behavior. And what I mean by that is not killing people, but killing the corporation and taking all their money. Because right now, the amount of fines that are given to pharmaceutical companies, they routinely get fined billions of dollars and they are still profitable. So if they continuously engage in this kind of behavior, they need to be fined to the point where it really, really, really dents the bottom line, if not eliminates the company from the world, because that's just a group of unethical actors at that point. So at the other end, we need to decriminalize possession and we need to help people in pain and people with addiction. People in pain sometimes need opioids, and that's not just at the end of life. If you're going to have agonizing pain that's as bad as cancer pain, but it's going to last 30 years rather than three months, I think you should get it, right? Nobody is helped by denying opioids to people who are benefiting from them. When people are in trouble with opioids, the really ironic thing here is that the best treatment for them is opioids. So, you know, our, our best treatments are methadone and buprenorphine, both of which are opioids. Heroin prescribing has been shown to work. Now, you don't want to get people to the point of addiction or physical dependence when the drugs are harming them. But for those who have already gotten to the point of addiction and for those who are in pain and who benefit, just leave them alone. Let them get on with their lives. The idea that having a substance in your body itself is a bad thing is something we need to really get rid of. You know, as we get older, all of us are going to be dependent on various things in order to stay alive. That doesn't mean we're addicted to them. You can read the full story at tonic.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. And tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.